Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslim Centric Podcast with your host Amanda Rani. Thank you so much for joining us once again. We've just launched the podcast and hopefully you're enjoying some of the episodes that have come out. It's April 2020 at the moment, so really it's um, in the thick of everything else that's going on with the coronavirus. I think a lot of people are struggling with the lockdown at home um, and it's quite a change to all of our lives. So hopefully the podcast will keep you going a little bit while you're spending a lot more time indoors. With the podcast itself, we're still learning and developing, so we'd really welcome your feedback and your comments. So please do get in touch when you have an opportunity. One of the things that we wanted to do was launch a series that I did uh, in 2017 called Desert Island Gems. And it's an adaptation of the very popular radio show. And I originally recorded it for Radio Ramadan Glasgow and they've given us the permission to release this on this platform. So really grateful to them. And the one that I wanted to kick off with was an interview which I did with Babur Ahmed back in 2017. And it was a really powerful interview. But one thing that I really enjoyed about it and why I think it's relevant to get us going for this year is he talks about obviously being in jail and imprisoned and coping with isolation, coping with um, not seeing his family and friends, so things that we can all relate to. So I hope really, you know, you get a lot of benefit from his interview. One of the really interesting things about the interview itself was we did it in his storage unit. So at that time, he had just launched his business venture, which was called The Latin Honey Shop, and I think still going. So please do, you know, check out their website. But he, we, we recorded it amongst dozens and dozens of boxes of honey which was quite unusual as it was the first time I'd met Babur um, but you, you can listen to there's a video version of this same interview on YouTube and I'll put the link in the episode notes so really hope you enjoy it if you, you get fed up of my babble at the beginning of each podcast you can just forward it um, and that's one of the advantages that you've got but if you are finding it beneficial please do support us and the main thing that you can do if you're on the apple store uh, apple podcast just give us a five-star rating hopefully and a comment and that really allows other people to find the podcast and uh, helps share it to a wider audience but please do subscribe as well also important are all of you on other uh, mediums that are listening to the podcast whether that's spotify google Podcasts, etc so please just do spread the word that'd be really helpful we're on social media, so we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Again, it's kind of an evolving thing. So check out our contact details on the episode notes. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode and stay tuned for a lot more of season one of Desert Island Gyms, which I'll be releasing over the next few weeks. Jazakallah khair and look after yourselves. You're listening to Desert Island Gems, an in-depth and intimate interview where we ask our guests to select meaningful gems that they would take to a desert island if they were cast away alone. We hope that their journey inspires you and helps you reflect. Our guest today is Babur Ahmed. Babur was born and brought up in London in the 1970s. At the age of 18, he was moved by a crisis in Bosnia and left to provide humanitarian aid. He eventually fought in the conflict to defend the Bosnian Muslims who were being massacred and suffered shrapnel wounds while he was there. 
After later attending Imperial College in London, Babur travelled to the conflict in Chechnya. Years later, he was arrested and abused by anti-terrorism police and eventually received damages from the Metropolitan Police. Perhaps the most challenging time for Babur was his arrest and detention in prison for 11 years, both in the UK and the US, often in the harshest prisons and with significant periods in solitary confinement. There was a very public campaign of support for Babur and over 140,000 Britons signed a government petition stating that he should be tried in a UK court rather than in the US if there were any charges against him. He was eventually released from US custody in 2015 and returned to his family in London after admitting to hosting some content on his website. The US judge said in her verdict that Babur was a good person who was never interested in terrorism. We'll hear more today inshallah and brother Babur, assalamu alaikum and thank you for joining us. Walaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. rahim Rabbi shrahli sadri wa yassirli amri wa hlul uqdatan min lisani yafqahu qawli. To begin with just an apology, I've had a um, bad cold and cough for about a week or so. So my voice is not um, what, it, uh, what it normally is. So Babur, we're sitting in London, um, surrounded by thousands of jars of honey. You recently launched a new business, the Latin Honey Shop. Can you explain why you chose this venture? When I was living in America, I lived with uh, Latinos, uh, South Americans, Colombians, Mexicans, and uh, I learned Spanish living with them. They told me about their continent, uh, which has more than half the species on Earth, and they told me about a honey which tasted so nice that the bears and the beekeepers would fight over it. So um, when I came back, then this was something I looked into, worked on it for a year with my family. We just launched this a month ago, latinhoneyshop.com. Are you an expert in all honeys? Have you tried different ones? I mean, do they all taste different? Can you tell? Well, yes. I mean, I spent one year researching, uh, you know, we spent one year researching the business. So um, there are different types and um, different colours and flavours from black to white to liquid to set. Uh, the most important thing is that it's raw and it's, uh, it's organic and um, we import it ourselves. So you can check us out on the latinhoneyshop.com website. Fantastic. And so these, I guess, for many of us, these simple pleasures of honey and, you know, picking up from the supermarket, etc. Being through what you have over the years, is it these even these little experiences mean so much? I mean, the first time you tasted honey again after you were freed, was it different than how you had tasted it in the rest of your life? It was coming back. Um, I experienced things the way a child might. So when I went swimming for the first time in 11 years, it was like I'd never been swimming before. Watching uh, a sunset out in the open, birds flying, playing with children, uh, eating your mum's cooking. So these were things that um, I experienced them for the first time. So it was fun. Like when I had a mango, it was like I'd never ever eaten a mango before because I'd forgotten what it tasted like. It was a pleasure. And when you were in prison, would you dream about what you would do when you got out? Would you eat certain things? Would you you say, as soon as I get out, when I'm released, this is what I'm going to do? Did you have that almost planned in your head? Yes and no. I mean, a lot of the time I was just thinking about saving myself. Um, I mean, for the first 10 years, I spent 11 years in prison, but for the first 10 years was without, like indefinitely, without me knowing how long I would be spending in prison. So for those 10 years, it was just trying to save myself from this situation. And I didn't really have a future and uh, all I had was a past and the present had been taken away from me. But in the final year, when I knew that I was coming home, that's when I began to, to, you know, to think about these things. But although at some point when I was in the solitary confinement, when I did not know when I would be coming 
home or if I would be coming home, I wrote a bucket list of things that I wanted to do. And I did it in a way to give myself a hope. And I wrote on there simple things like read a bedtime story to my nephews and nieces, um, eat a, at a certain restaurant um, or go to a certain place or, or experience something. Uh, so it was, um, yeah, I did think about those things and uh, some of them I'm glad to say I've done. One of them was to, to watch a cricket match uh, of uh, Pakistan playing England with my dad. So um, last year I was able to do that because the Pakistan team was visiting and we had a friend, we were able to get free tickets and we went to Lords and um, I put that picture up on my uh, blog at barbarahmed.com or my Facebook page, I put it up there as well. And uh, so I'm, I'm working through that list. It's a long list, but I'm working through have it. You, have you got any other sort of wacky things on the list? Uh, probably not ones that I could mention, <laughs> but one of them also was to, to start a business okay. and to, to be able to earn. So that is something which I'm in the process of, uh, of ticking off uh, as well. And during some of those years, did, did you think you would never get released or did you always have the aspiration and hope you know one day this will all resolve in situations like that you're always teetering between hope and fear you know fear holds you prisoner and uh, hope sets you free but um yeah there were times you know and i'm not gonna lie to you i did have moments of despair i did have moments where i thought man i'm gonna die in prison you know i'm gonna spend the rest of my life here i'm i'm not going to be home to, you know, to bury my parents. But at those moments, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would show me a lot of dreams. Uh, not because of I'm some a righteous or pious person, but similar people that have been through experiences like this. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows them dreams. Because sometimes just reading the Quran is not enough. Just reading the Hadith is not enough. You need something more. You need something like physical or tangible. You need Allah to show you something. And at those moments, I would be shown dreams. I would be shown dreams of Quranic verses. I would be shown dreams of my future, of what was going to happen. I would see dreams where I'm back with my family. Or I'm walking on the streets of my neighborhood or I'm doing certain things. So those things, they sort of strengthen the, the, the hope factor and uh, they reduce the, 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 the fear factor. But it was a constant battle between the two. When you experienced these dreams, did some of them while you were there come true and did that reaffirm that actually these are true dreams rather than just a lot of lot of thinking on your own? How did you know that they weren't just, you know, your imagination or your thinking in terms of that very, you know, solitary confinement? I mean, as the Prophet he described, he said dreams are of three types. The majority are the ones, the musings of the mind. A minority are nightmares and a minority are visions. And some of the signs of visions is that you remember them. Most of the visions that I had came true. I saw dreams of uh, about myself being moved to another prison, for example. Um, I saw them and they came true. I saw dreams about world events, earthquakes, like tsunami. I saw the tsunami um, one night before it happened, the 2004 tsunami. I saw that in a dream. I saw um, what's going to happen to other people, the two cousins, gang members. And I saw that one would be convicted and found guilty and spend his life in prison and the other one would go home. And so most of the visions, they came true. And so that sort of reinforced the hope that visions that I had about my future and about coming home, that they would also want come true one day. And uh, they did. Did you ever experience visions before you went to prison or since? Um, before occasionally and since occasionally. But when you need it, Allah sends it to you. And at that time, I needed them, so um, he uh, he did uh, he did send them to me. So, Babar Ahmed, um, tell us about the first item you're going to take with you on this desert island. The first item I'm going to take with me is a verse in Surah Baqarah, verse I think it's two hundred and fourteen. 
and it is a'udhu billahi min shaitanir rajeem am hasibtum an tadkhulu al-janna walamma ya'tikum mathalu alladhina khalaw min qablikum massatuhum al-ba'sa'u wad-darra' wa zulzilu hatta yaqul ar-rasul walladhina amanu ma'ahu mata nasrullah ala inna nasrullah qareeb which means do you think do you really think that you will enter paradise when there has not yet come to you the likes of that which came to those before you they were afflicted by adversity and hardship until even the messenger and those along with him they cried out when will come the victory or the help of allah indeed the help of allah is near and this verse sustained me for many 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 years in the in the dark years that i was in prison and in this verse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he's telling us that he knows the nature of man that man despairs man is weak and sometimes you question Allah subhanahu you don't question his wisdom or his decision but you just want it to end you're going through so much pain you're like man Allah when is this going to end if even a messenger said asked Allah when is this going to end when is this hardship going to end it's okay for you in those moments of despair to to uh, to say that plead to Allah where you want it to end and then Allah replies immediately after that indeed the help of Allah is near so his so the lesson i got from that was whenever things would reach a breaking point expect an opening to appear and that's what will always happen that the night you know no matter how cold and dark and long the night is the dawn it comes after the night's darkest hour so whatever you're going through if things get to a point where you're at breaking point expect some relief to come can you paint us a picture of what life was like in prison I went to 11 different prisons in America and Britain in the 11 years uh, that I was there. Each prison was different. I think the hardest time was the 2 years that I spent in an American in complete isolation in an American supermax prison which was from 2012 after I was extradited to 2014. That was the most difficult time I'd say not only of those 11 years of perhaps my life that was those were the most difficult years of my life. I was in complete isolation which means that you're in a cell by yourself for 23 to 24 hours a day. You're surrounded by mentally ill inmates who shout and scream and bang on the walls 24 hours a day so you can't sleep. Every time you leave your cell you are subject to a complete strip search where every item of clothing is taken off your body and you have to squat and you have to it's quite a humiliating procedure even if you're only going to the shower which is like 10 feet away you have to be to be subjected to a full strip search. Every time you leave your cell you're placed in full shackles which means leg ankle shackles handcuffs to the back and a chain linking to the handcuffs to the to those shackles then an officer grabs you and they walk you to the the shower they lock you inside this small metal cubicle which is the shower and once you're in they take the handcuffs off but the leg shackles remain on while you shower so um you you sleep deprived you get very little food um you're just by yourself there's no one to talk to there's obviously no phone or email or internet access you're thousands of miles away from from uh, from home so that was a sort of scene where 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 i was so how did it make you feel when they would shackle you and take you to the cubicles etc was there a lot of anger or resentment and i think that's linked into your next item as well i sort of understood that and okay the officers that are shackling me some of them would be malicious and they're doing it to cause me pain or discomfort some of them were just doing their job it didn't make it any easier but there was a book that i read which was perhaps one of the best books that i've read in my life i actually read this book like three times and one of the best books i've read in prison and it's one of the items uh, on my list it's a book called man's search for meaning 
by Dr. Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a Austrian psychologist, a Jew who spent three years in a concentration camp during the Holocaust. And he wrote this book actually on scraps of paper while he was detained uh, um, inside one of these concentration camps. But the key theme that he wrote about in his book was every single thing can be taken away from a man. Every single thing, no matter how bad he's treated, people can take everything away from you except one thing. And that one thing is your choice how you wish to react to that thing. And how he would deal with whatever he went through, which was in a million years nowhere close to what I went through he would smile or he would keep his resolve he would maintain his dignity he would not allow he would not show any sort of weakness to his captors and that was my philosophy that I would smile with them I would joke with them some of them some of the good ones they would say to me that they would come to me they'll talk to me about their problem they were going through turmoil in their lives and uh, they would come in the morning 7 a.m. in the morning and they see me up and I'm detained in indefinite detention in the supermax and I'm happy good morning always smiling we have the saying in prison that you can fool some of the people some of the time but you can't fool all of the people all of the time and when you're living with someone for two years in a confined space we know the officers and the officers know us so they knew that I wasn't putting on a show so would there be an officer assigned to you then no there wasn't an officer assigned there would just be different shift officers who would work there but you'll see them throughout the day they would pass your food through a slot in the door if you needed to go to a shower, these are the ones that will take you out or they'll take you out for recreation into the recreation cage. So um, you get to know them. Some of them you'll speak because they got no one to talk to as well. And they in their lives were going through turmoil. Some of them would talk to me about their girlfriend problems. Some of them would talk to me about children problems, health problems, health issues, finance issues. And they wouldn't even trust their colleagues with that. In the beginning, they treated me bad. But as they got to know me as a person, then um, they began to treat me well and some of them actually before I left that prison they came and shook my hand did you initially get surprised in terms of why they were sharing these you know personal stories with you and their difficulties no not at that time because by that time I had already got to know them and see them as human beings and the reason they shared those personal aspects of their lives with me was because they also at that point they had also begun to see me as a human being I mean some were just good people outright from day one why didn't you get angry towards um I mean sometimes sometimes they would annoy you I think sometimes the things that they would do would annoy you I think I knew that like the bad ones were trying to provoke me so I understood that and I knew that things were like you'd come back to your cell. They've searched your cell and they completely turned it upside down. Your letters are all over the floor. You're, and you know, when you see that, you know that this is designed to provoke a response. But um, that's why, you know, I'll try not to um, try not to get angry as hard as it was. And actually in the ruling of the US judge, um, which eventually led to your release, uh, she heard from many British prison officials who testified on your behalf with regards to your character. And she said... British and American. And American. Yeah. And she said, it appears to me that Barber is a generous, thoughtful person who is funny and honest. He is well-liked and humane and empathetic. I mean, did that quite surprise you then when she read that out in court or um, issued that judgment? I guess we're always surprised when other people describe uh, things about us that we don't know about ourselves. But I think she formed this opinion after reading um, hundreds of pages of letters that people in my community that knew me since I was born, work colleagues, as well as officials and people in, in prison in, in, in America and, and Britain. But did it surprise me? Um, well, I guess some of it did, yeah. <laughs> and what was it like in terms of in that you know solitary confinement? How would you occupy yourself? 
Can I talk about the next item? One of the items on my list? Yep. Let's go to the next um, item. I don't know if it's the next, but there is a quote by the poet, uh, 11th century Persian poet, Omar Khayyam. Be happy for this moment, for this moment is your life. And the choice ahead of me was either I can sit here and cry. Oh, look, and sit in self-pity and wallow in self-pity. Look what's happened to me. I'm in this prison thousands of miles away from home and they want to send me to prison for the rest of my... I could sit and cry about it and I could allow myself to sink or I could keep my head above the water and swim. So my routine, when I would wake up in the morning, after I'd prayed my Fajr prayer, I would sit around and look around my cell and I would thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for everything that uh, that I had. And I would go through one by one and say, Allah, thank you, I have a sink. Thank you, I have a bed. Thank you, I have my own cell. Thank you, I have a slit from which I can see the clouds. Thank you, I have something to write with. Thank you, I have something to read. Thank you, I have a flushing toilet. And I'll just go through one. Thank you, I have my health. Thank you, I have family that, that looks out for me. Thank you, I've got lawyers that are fighting on my behalf. So by the time my day would begin, I would feel like a king. I would feel like I had everything and that there was nothing more that I that I needed in this world. And um, that is life. It's It's between gratitude and patience. Being grateful for the things that you have and being patient for the things that you don't have yet in the hope that tomorrow will be better than today. Tell us about your next item. I can remember. The next item is this verse in Surah Yusuf. Surah Yusuf was the scholar said about Surah Yusuf, there is no one who is in any sort of despair or grief or sadness or sorrow who reads this Surah, except that by the end of it, he will be filled with hope. And many times, sometimes at my lowest moments, I would just read this Surah. There's a verse that comes right at the end of this surah after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has spoken about the the story of uh, Yusuf alayhi salam. He mentions in verse um, 110 he says Which means till they, the messengers and those along with them despaired that is the point when our help came to them and our might cannot be diverted from the wrongdoers and um, this verse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us so let me repeat that um, until when the messengers despaired and they felt that they had been denied at that moment they came to them our help no one can divert our might from the people from, from the wrongdoers so this verse also similar to the, the first item that I mentioned on the list about despair, about even the messengers feeling despair. And this is a cycle that we see in the sunnah or the tradition of Allah that when a hardship reaches critical point, when it reaches breaking point, when you're going through something and you're thinking, that's it man, I can't take no more. I cannot take, I cannot take one second more. That is the point when relief uh, it comes to you. And why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do that? He doesn't do that because of, you know, because he's sadistic or because it causes him, uh, uh, because it causes him uh, pleasure. He does that because when you're at that moment, the sincerity and the heart with which you cry to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at that moment and you cry to him for relief and you know that there is no one on earth, no one in the universe that can save you at that moment except him. That make brings him pleasure. That's what he likes, and then at that moment he brings you, uh, he brings you relief. This verse I saw many times. I saw in my dreams before I would go to sleep. I would open the Quran at random. I would shut my eyes and I'd point my finger and I would say, "This is what Allah wants to say to me at this moment." 
and many many times at my lowest points this exact verse it came on my finger and many people in prison have talked about the story of prophet yusuf not just the surah but actually the story of prophet yusuf and his own uh, experience i mean is that something that resonated with you at the time if you look at the story of yusuf alayhi salam allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he calls it ahsan al-qasas the best story it doesn't mean the best story in the quran or the best story at that time it means the best story period the reason allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned this story in one surah in its entirety which no other prophet is mentioned of a man who went to prison wrongly for many years the accounts say he spent about 10 years in prison and he was accused of something to be accused of of rape even in nowadays it's far worse than being accused of terrorism and um he was accused of that but he maintained his principles and morals in prison he remained a good person and eventually he was exonerated and that story gave me hope so much hope that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as long as he is looking out for you things will always work out in the end they may take time in my case they take ele- they took 11 years but after 11 years to be accused of being a terrorist and then for the judge not just any judge one of the most senior judges in america to stand up in open court and say that this man is not a terrorist it's sort of like it feels sweet i mean i knew that anyway my family and friends knew that anyway but for her who's looked at all the evidence including classified material and god knows what and for her to come to that conclusion reminded me of what happened with yusuf alayhi salam and everything that he had lost allah gave it back to him and uh, as bad as his life was before that's how good it later became do you remember your first night in prison who doesn't the first night is the hardest night not just in prison it's the hardest night of your life in fact uh, like in in the uk they have a suicide prevention scheme for the first night because uh, that's when most suicides uh, happen it's quite apt if i could mention the next item on my list cuz it ties on absolutely my first night maybe not in prison in custody uh, on the night of the 2nd of december 2003 and early that morning in i was living in my house in south london and uh, with my wife anti terrorism police officers burst into the house and for the next 40 minutes or so they continued to subject me to an ordeal of physical violence um sexual abuse religious abuse verbal abuse this was later formally admitted in court proceedings where the met police commissioner admitted that i never resisted arrest uh, and the violence was gratuitous so when i got to the police station i had no less than 73 physical injuries including bleeding in my ears in my urine i still have um, some of the scars your viewers can't see it but uh, you will see some of the scars that are still there um what 14 years on i was in a lot of physical pain so that day i was trying to find some sort of comfort i couldn't sleep there was blood my my wounds were sticking to the felt blanket the police station uh, um the 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 pillow was hard my head was hurting cuz they punched my head about 20 times or so so I was in a lot of physical pain and I was finding any quranic verse or surah to get comfort i read surah baqarah it didn't get give me what i was looking for i read surah ali imran i read surah yusuf i read all of these until i read surah muhammad and that gave me the comfort and then for the rest of those 7 days until i was released that's the only surah that i read and there's one verse in surah muhammad which is verse 27 where allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم فكيف إذا توفتهم الملائكة فيضربون وجوههم وأدبارهم 
And how is it when the angels will take their souls at the time of death and they will strike their faces and their backs? And that was what they did to me. I was helpless, I was defenseless, I was in uh, handcuffs, 15 officers all over me, punching my head, punching my face, punching my back, punching my kidneys. And it was like nothing was more apt. And Allah was telling me that you don't need to worry about, don't worry about what's going to happen to them, don't worry about taking revenge, don't worry about, I've got this sorted. This is my department. It was about justice. It was about justice. Allah saying, saying, saying to me, those same guys, when the the time of death comes the angels are going to beat them on their faces and on their backs and it gave me comfort because at that time i needed it and it was at that incident as well that one officer said you know while they're beating you and restraining you you know where's your god now did you feel that that then led to a deep mistrust of authority ever since then and do you still have that difficulty with authority establishments i've i've come a long way since then so the mistrust was not because of the words that those two or three officers said, you know, you're in prayer now, pray to with your God now, pray to him. It was more about the whole process and how I went through a long legal process and, and how they said that I attacked them and I resisted arrest and how it went to a jury trial and the jury believed the officers and, and they found them not guilty and they um, shook hands uh, with the officers to, to praise them. So that sort of gave me some mistrust. But I have to say that I went through all of the emotions that a person might go through. I went through anger, I went through betrayal, I went through feelings of vengeance, I went through frustration. I went through despair, I went through helplessness. But after all of these years, I saw amongst them people that treated me nicely and kindly. Like after this whole incident that happened, when I got to the police station, it was another police officer who offered me a glass of water. And he later testified in my favour, saying that this man looked very calm and composed. He didn't look like someone who would attack police officers and his handcuff injuries were the worst that I have seen in my 35 year career. I learned that in prison as well. I had officers that treated me very badly, but I had officers that were very, very, very good to me. When I balance that, I think when wrong is happening to you and someone shows you some kindness, for me, that more than overcompensated for the wrong that was done to me. And I guess it highlights the importance of not generalizing people in communities. And I know as Muslims, we often feel we are generalized, but your own experiences, you didn't then generalize all police officers, all prison officers, all lawyers. You, you were able to take good and bad from, from each. And I guess, is that a more accurate representation of what the reality is well at the beginning i did i did generalize them because of what happened to me there are many bad uh, apples in the police force in the prison in the prison service these are places designed to break human beings but i do not believe that every single police officer is an evil man i do not believe every single prison officer or government official intelligence official whatever is an evil man some of them are, are psychopaths there's no doubt about it not some many of them are psychopaths they're racist, they hate Muslims, there's no doubt about that. But not all of them are like that. And I would not just see a police officer or someone in uniform and say that, hey, that guy's a devil, until I knew what he was, uh, uh, what he was about. And that's really interesting, because if anyone has the right to be angry with the police service, prison service, there's not many people that have been through experience like yourself. So I guess it's important for the rest of us to keep things in context as well. Despite what you've been through, you're able to identify the good and the bad. I think one thing, I, I remember one thing that Nelson Mandela, he wrote. This isn't an item on my list, but I'm sort of going to like... You can add it in. <laughs> I'm going to add it in. He said, when I left the gates of prison after 27 years in custody, I knew 
that if I did not leave my bitterness, anger and hatred behind, then I would still be in prison. And I left that behind in prison. And I've chosen, it's my story, it's my narrative. I've chosen what parts of it I want to remember. And don't get me wrong, a lot of wrong was done to me. A lot of evil was, was, was done to me. I'm not afraid to talk about it. But that does not define my whole experience. My whole experience is that of an adventure, meeting different people from different places and knowing about their lives and their stories and appreciating different cultures and traveling to different lands. And, and you know, it was a whole in those 11 years. I lived a life of, of, of 100 years. So, um, you know, why should I be angry? I mean, life is too short. You know, I haven't forgiven. There's a difference. I haven't forgiven them and now lovey-dovey and kiss and, you know, forgiven. No, 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 I haven't forgiven those who are that wrong to me. I'm not shackled to what they did to me because that's Allah's department. He's going to deal with them. He said to me that, look, that's my department. You don't need to worry about that. I've got that sorted. You just live your life and do. So if he's told me that he's going to, that's his department, why should I worry about justice? I'll get that all, all, all come later. Do you think there are mistakes that you made and there's things that you should have done differently in the past? Absolutely. I mean, my case was the reason I was extradited, the reason I was assaulted by the police was um, because of a um, a rat, a snitch, an informant. Some guy who is a hafiz of Quran, who's a student, uh, an imam, a student of uh, Arabic and, and who used to teach Arabic. So this was someone that actually helped. And the mistake that I made was helping someone and, and you know that help. was before prison or yeah that was before prison. prison yeah yeah yeah. that was the reason i spent i spent 11 years in prison and i was extradited and i was assaulted by the police based on false allegations that this man made so the mistake i made was trusting people like that and you know being a bit too naive and trusting people like that tell us about your next item Baba. What, what will you take with you there's a quote from the torah which says most of what is feared to happen does not in fact happen linked to that is a quote that people attribute to julius caesar in which he said a coward dies a thousand deaths before his own but the valiant never taste of death except once our fears and anxieties about the future are far greater than the reality there were times where i would go through in my mind sitting alone in a prison cell late at night what if i spend the rest of my life in prison what if i go, what if i this happens what if that happens what if this this happens what if i find a, a judge who's not fair and those would kill me and one thing I learned is that most of what you fear is going to happen, things don't turn out that bad. So whatever you're going through, whether you're going through illness or you're going through, you, you've lost something or, or you're going through marital problems or issues to do with your children or your children's schooling and how they're going to do and, and to do with, with finances and job. People worry about so many things which they don't actually turn out that bad. So you kill yourself a hundred times before it it might not even happen. And um, this verse gave me a lot of this, well, this quote, if it is from the Torah, wherever it's from, but it is true. And it gave me a lot of hope. You might think things will be that bad, but things won't be that bad. Let's go back to perhaps happier times um, when you're growing up as a child in London. Um, what are your memories of growing up and what was your childhood like? I'm good. Uh, Alhamdulillah, I had a good, um, happy childhood. I lived on a small council estate. I mean, I've described it more in the book that I'm, uh, um, you know, writing about my experience. Uh, I've written lots, lots to go. It was a positive experience. Uh, my parents, mum especially, mum and dad, but, um, you know, mum who invested a lot of time and effort into sending me to different, you know, classes, or whether it's reading competition, whether it's karate, martial arts, whether it was Arabic or Islamic studies. 
financially we weren't that well off but um alhamdulillah you know we 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 just uh, we made the most of what we had uh, and i think that also helped me to get through prison was education a big focus for your family when you grew up it was yes i mean like most south asian families um but there was also an emphasis on physical sports as well for most of the parents from south asian backgrounds it's just study 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 is going to make you pass an exam it's not going to make you succeed in life getting an a grade would not make you succeed in life you need more than that uh, things to build your confidence and um my parents always encouraged me to join the cadet force to do martial arts to do sports to be in the cricket team and so education yes but with other things and was faith always present growing up yes it was my parents always encouraged me they taught me the values um you know being honest telling the truth my dad is a very uh, honest man alhamdulillah and honesty came from him being straight in dealings uh, empathy i learned from my mom of reaching out to people that are in pain who used to live across the road from a uh, hospital and um we grew up so we saw deaths and we saw illnesses and we saw people being diagnosed and people spend all day and all night at the hospital and they would come to our house to rest to recuperate to pray to eat and my mom would always be sending me with uh, food and things to people in intensive care and so again these were the islamic values that my mom taught me that to care for another person and to to share in people's pain and how did they cope with your whole experience in prison well if if anything i think it was harder for them than it was uh, for me because to lose uh, i mean i don't have any children but to lose your child you see if you, when your child die or dies you'll never get closure you know you'll never get closure but at some point you come to live with it but when your child is in in, in prison indefinitely it was very difficult for them like my dad would go to you know my parents would go to weddings and they'll see all my friends and one or two times my dad would just be overcome with emotion and he'd have to stand outside because he would be searching my face amongst all my friends and he wouldn't find it so it was very difficult for them on eid they would miss me on eid especially in the beginning my mum used to go and um, go to my cupboard and uh, she used to smell my clothes and then uh, after a while the, the smell went as well So um yeah it was more difficult for them than it was for me. And how much contact would you have with your family while you're in prison? It differed depending on which prison I was in and where. In this country I would call them every day and they would come to see me once a week. The 8 years I spent in England. In America I was allowed 3-15 minute phone calls a week and you have to book it a week in advance and it has to be at a set time. So there were three different family houses that I would call. So in order to sort of get you know two for the price of one my parents would go would walk to my sister's house and then i would call my sister's house twice a week and occasionally one of my parents would be delayed but i could not repeat that phone call so they would have to wait until the following week so they'll say oh dad just left he'll just be here in 5 minutes and i had a set timer and once it's done it's done it's finished and i had to go when i was in america i met them in those 3 years i met them twice because it was very difficult and expensive and when they went there the authorities the first time they went the authorities really hassled them i mean it would have been nice if they never extradited me in the first place but when i was there they did um so you felt even more isolated when you would make these phone calls did you actually feel worse or better having spoken to family I did feel better but it was um it was a show if you love your family when they come to see you in prison or you call them from prison you're putting on a show they're putting on a show 
I'm fine, everything is okay, and you, you talk about the positive things. You don't want them to worry about you, and they don't want you to worry about them. Sometimes, I mean, okay, obviously, you know, if I was feeling good, I'd I'd, I'd always put on, um, you know, tell them the positives. But where I was, um, if something was bothering me, they would know it in my voice straight away, and they would be upset over it. Because your father um, was very involved in the campaign for your release, and similar to... I know Muslims begs father as well, may Allah have mercy on him. Um, so I guess these fathers are really championed. Was your father naturally somebody who would be out there campaigning, speaking, travelling? It, it was funny in one way because my dad, at the start of his life, he always wanted to be a film actor. He wanted to be famous. He went for auditions and he did <laughs> do some drama work. He's a very big uh, comedian. Okay. He's got prizes for comedy. And there's photos of him on stage in all sorts of funny disguises, wearing a beard or wearing like in some woman's costume or God knows what. So um, it was funny because after I went to prison, then all our relatives, they said that, well, you know, uncle got his 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> so he became famous, yeah. but maybe it wasn't for the um, wrong reasons. My dad, you know, he was one of the heroes of this uh, campaign. Behind the scenes was my mum, was my sister's. Um, we got a lot of inspiration and support from um, Mozambique's uh, father, what he did for him, may Allah have mercy on him. You know, my dad, he's not an activist, he's not a campaigner, he's not a political person, he just lives in his own world of of uh, cricket and, and Pakistani politics. And, you know, he's, he's a very simple person. So for him now, giving interviews to BBC, to Sky, going to court hearings... And he would go early in the morning, sometimes 6 a.m. A car would come from a you know a, a TV channel to pick him up. Sometimes he'd go to event, speak at an event. He'd come back 11, 12 o'clock at night by himself, tired, hungry, cold, uh, come back by tube. And he was doing all of that uh, for me. So um, he definitely, he was, um, he was a hero. And from what you understand when you come back, I mean, did life just for the whole family for that was those 11 years did they just adjust and get used to it it didn't stop i told them that it should not stop they would not want to go on holidays i'll tell them you have to go on holidays because i'll be sad if you don't go when they would go on dinners they would not want to tell me what they ate because they thought it might make me make me feel bad but i would insist because it would only make me feel happy and my thing was that look I could spend one year in prison, I could spend five, I could spend ten, I could spend thirty. Live your lives. You know, I mean, my younger sister, she got married when I was in prison. And for her, that's like the biggest moment of her life. Um, I missed a lot of uh, births, I missed a lot of marriages, I missed a lot of uh, deaths. Life just has to go on, whatever. Be happy for this moment, for this moment is your life. Just go through whatever you're going through. Don't, don't stop your life. You're going through a hardship or someone around you. Just try to make the most of uh, of, of what you have and, 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 and what you are. And when you were growing up, you got quite um, involved in sort of community work and as an activist and you are involved with the young Muslims as well. How did that all come about and what role did that play in your life? I mean, that was just youth work in my community and um, that gave me a direction. So where other teenagers would be smoking drugs or they might be you know, involved in other negative things, I was trying to make my community better. And I think that was also a defining moment in, in my life. And I met a lot of good people who inspired me and who, whose words and inspiration, it kept me going through the years that I was in prison. And many of them I'm still in touch with. And many of them campaigned for me during the years that I was away. So that was a very positive experience. Did you ever find that the friends that you had hoped would be with you disappeared and that the friends you weren't expecting came out and supported you over the years? Yes, 
when you go through a hardship, you find out who your friends are and you find out who your enemies are. So the strange thing for me was there was, I had close relatives who were sort of scared that if, you know, if we show that we're associated to him or to the family, then it might reflect on us. And um, which I don't blame them for that. You know, they have their own circumstances. I mean, it wasn't their problem. You know, it was my problem that I was in prison. It wasn't their problem. And then I had other distant relatives and they were proudly coming in public and saying that this is my relative and, and I'll do anything for him. And friends, likewise, people that, that, you know, again, my fault for being just so judgmental of people, people that I didn't, you know, perhaps think uh, have a high opinion of. They came out for me and they were there where even members of my own family were not. But I don't hold any grudges against them. I mean, people are at different levels and um you know my relatives they still prayed for me and then they still you know had support for me you know people support in different ways but you know yeah you you had a few people a few i would say it's a very small minority of people that i would have maybe thought that okay some sort of support or, or my family would expect from them and uh, the doors were shut and then other people whom we didn't expect anything from and they formed the majority I mean, most of the people who campaigned for me, they don't know me, they never met me. They That means a lot to me because they are the real heroes because I had no choice but to bear what I was going through. And these are people who they didn't know me from Adam and they went out and they gave their time and their efforts and their du'as campaign for someone who was a complete stranger. So that shows what is so great about our Ummah. Tell us about your next item, Babur. My next item is this um, quote from the 13th century Persian poet Sa'di of Shiraz. I cried because I had no shoes until I saw a man who had no feet. And the story goes that Saadi was this scholar and he travelled to from his city to the city of Kufa to enter the Grand Mosque. And um, he was financially in a very bad situation at that time. So people on the fr day of Friday would wear their best shoes and their best clothes to go to the mosque. And when he got there, he didn't even have a pair of shoes. So he felt so sad for himself, like in his moment of self-pity, he sat down and he began to cry that I've come all the way here to this great mosque and I don't even have a pair of shoes. So he said, when I was sitting there crying, he said, I saw a man who had no feet. And the lesson from that is no matter what you are going through, there is always, always, always someone who is worse off than you. And no matter what I went through, there was I was in supermax, I was in isolation. There were people in worse conditions than me. There was people like Shakir Ahmed who were in Guantanamo Bay. People doing life sentences. There were people in, in prisons in, in Africa, in, in, in Latin America who were like 40 to, a, 40 to a room who didn't even have their own cell or clean water or flushing toilet. So there were people suffering, not just prison, there were people suffering from cancer, whereas I still had my health. There were people suffering from death, bereavement, disability, so many problems people were going through. And that is the lesson of life that, you know, whenever you're going through something bad, look at the things that you have. Be grateful for the things that you have and always look at those worse off than you and that will make you more grateful for the things that you have. And I guess it put, puts... You know, many of your difficulties in life, challenges in perspective and gives gives it a degree of context, doesn't it? When you were finishing from school and I think in university, you became involved with the Bosnian campaign and the war and you initially went for charity aid and then you went on to fight in Bosnia and Chechnya. Tell us a bit about what led you to take on physical military sort of tactics, etc. I mean, I was I was 18 years old. And I went to Bosnia as an aid worker. The things I saw there, the stories I heard, I came to a conclusion that there's no point giving food and water to people who are being 
you know, two-year-old babies are being raped and having their throats slit. Horrific things are happening. Genitals of imams are being cut. Quran is being used uh, as toilet paper. Uh, mosques are being destroyed. I thought there's no point giving food and water to these people. I need to stop this from happening. And so I went to the Bosnian army and I offered my services. And over the next few years, back and forth, when on the battlefield, I saw combat. I was injured as well. So that was a, a an experience. That was, I mean, I'm... I'm I don't have any regrets. I'm proud and ask Allah to accept uh, whatever I did there. My only regret is that I didn't do enough and that there were other people who did more than me. It was a long time ago. It was now coming back to 25 years ago, 1992. That was my first visit to Bosnia. I was 18. And I came back and um, I felt the need for Muslims to, um, you know, to be able to defend themselves, that uh, they should be able to defend themselves. And I, and Did you ever feel close to death? Yeah, there were there were a lot of times where where I was uh, close to death. But as a Muslim, when you're going to places like this, you know you know very well what you what you sign up for. Even at that young age. Absolutely. You know, I'd learned, I'd read the stories of the Sahaba, and 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 I knew that that was a risk uh, that I'm putting myself forward for. But these people, they were my brothers and sisters, and and I was doing it to protect them. And if the roles had been reversed, they would have done the same. They would have done the same for me. And how did you cope with, I guess, because you were at university at the time as well, weren't you? And you're coming and going. I mean, it's two different worlds on one side. You're it is. Your degree and then going on to the battlefield. I think the biggest miracle is the fact that I actually got through and I completed my course and I passed at the end of it. I managed to scrape through. But yes, because those four years, I was throughout those years, I was basically obsessed with the war in Bosnia. You know, university was almost like an afterthought. So what would, did you do at university? I studied aeronautical engineering. I would go in my holidays and I would, you know, my evenings and weekends would be spent raising money and things. And that obviously that was a different era. Times have changed. The conflicts have changed. Laws have changed. You know, you can't do, um, you know, the, there's consequences and the, there's risks involved in, in doing that stuff. I was fighting as part of an established army. I was fighting another you know, I was fighting soldiers on a battlefield. Things are a bit more complicated. And one thing I learned from my experience in Bosnia that uh, not every conflict in the world is Bosnia. So what would you say to those people again over the last few years that are seeing the sense of injustice about the need to defend our brothers and sisters around the world and that they feel they need to do perhaps what you did? I mean, there's nothing wrong in feeling outrage. You know, there's nothing wrong in that in feeling passionate or outrage or, or, or anyone with humanity, let alone a Muslim who feels for his brothers and sisters would feel this way but know the history of what you are doing conflicts are quite complicated is being portrayed as a muslim versus non-muslim battle in a certain country but then you have powers like russia or you have uh, america involved or you have you know europe and they're, they're really really conflict complicated or you have Shia Sunni conflicts. You have don't allow yourself to be a pawn. That that you're you're going with good intentions, but you're actually being used. And uh, there was an element of that which I learned from from the experience that the conflicts that I was involved in in, in Bosnia and Chechnya. And things are different. You know, know the consequences of what you're signing up for. Know the legal consequences. Know the physical consequences. Someone he's going and he knows he's going to go to prison if he comes back. I mean, sometimes people get into these things uh, with naivety, not knowing what the consequences are. Even injury. Some people they they get injured and then they like hey okay i didn't sign up for this i thought i was going to be shaheed i was going to be martyred i didn't expect to be disabled or blinded for the rest of my life the war is serious business people should um know the consequences and don't go in emotion because activism you know activism should not be uh, motivated by anger or hatred 
or, or, or revenge. Activism should be motivated by love and empathy. And there are many ways that you can help in these conflicts. Whatever you do it, do it out of love and do it out of empathy. Don't do it out of negative feelings uh, because the result of that is not good. Tell us about your next item, Barber. My last item is a quote from a book called The Count of Monte Cristo, written by Alexandre Dumas. And this was a novel that I read in 2013 when I was in confined in the Supermax prison. It was recommended to me by um, my lawyer and uh, friend uh, Kelly Barrett. So I spent three months reading it. The reason I'd spent three months, not because I'm a slow reader and I got nothing else to read, I was afraid the book would finish. It's a 900-page book. So I was working on my case for 14 hours a day and the last half hour before I went to sleep, I would read this book. I would be in a different planet, 18th century France, 19th century France, and... Um, I would be in a different planet. So this book, it basically, it tells the story of a man. Uh, wrong is done to him. Uh, he goes to prison for many years. And when he goes to prison, he loses family, his money, his wealth. Everything he loses it when he comes out. Sorry, when he goes to prison. Then by chance of miracle, he comes out and he becomes very, very rich. And then the story is told that those people that were kind to him, a lot of good things come to them. And those people that were wrong to him, a lot of bad things happen uh, to them. So at the end of the story is this quote. And it's a very, very powerful quote, which was, you know, which was the last of my eight items. There is neither happiness nor misery in the world. There is only the comparison of one state with another. Nothing more. He who has felt the deepest grief is best able to experience supreme happiness. We must have felt what it is to die that we may appreciate the enjoyments of life. Live then and be happy and never forget that until the day God will deign to reveal the future to man, all human wisdom is contained in these two words. Wait and hope. And the message I got from this that the more you have suffered in your life, the more pain and despair and grief that you have suffered in your life and your past, what you've gone through, the more happiness you are able to experience and the richer your life becomes once you've gone through that experience. And I would not have wished or wanted to go through the experience that I went through. But looking back, I'm glad I went through that experience because my life is now richer as a result of it. Uh, I, I see things... I feel more about things um, that, that, that I didn't used to see before. I was blind to them uh, before. And I see those now and I appreciate them now. And I feel that is, um, you know, my life is richer as a result of what I went through. And you've been a free person for nearly two years. Um, what are your ambitions for the future? Are you thinking about looking forward? How do you keep, you know, what are you working towards now? So there's, I've been back for just less than two years. So I haven't been back that long. I was away for 11 years and I've only been back for about 20 months or so. So I'm doing the things that I'm trying to get back on my feet, trying to earn. I need to get married, bits in the house, you know, little things that, that normal day-to-day -day things that everyone else uh, does. But once I get back on my feet, one of the things that I really want to do is I want to give people hope. I realize that there is suffering in the world, but you can get through suffering and you can get through hardship. You can get through injustice. You can get through it without it turning you into a bitter, angry person, without it turning you into a negative person. Life is full of hardships and struggles. The more we share, the more we can 
we can get from each other. So my message that I, I want something positive to come out of my experience. I'm writing a book. I write a, uh, I have a blog at barbarahmed.com. I have a Facebook page where, where I post. And I just want to spread a message and, and to give people hope, whatever they're going through, whatever you're going through. You're going through domestic violence. You're going through poverty, disability, cancer, illness. You can't find a job. You're, you're, you're going through mental illness. Whatever you're going through, just have hope that tomorrow will be uh, better than uh, today. Just have, have hope that um, one day the sun will shine again um, as it did for me. So, Babar, how do you relax and what makes you laugh? How do I relax? Um, I guess just spending time with uh, my nieces, nephews, young children. That makes me relax. That takes me into a different world. That makes me relax. That's something I wasn't able to do for 11 years. And moments of solitude, being by myself. If I'm driving or if I'm going on the tube, I'm just walking somewhere by myself, be alone in my thoughts. So although you've had a lot of solitude in the last 10, 11 years, do you actually prefer that solitude? You haven't gone the other way and you're always seeking company or social, you know, socialization? Are you? I'm not a hermit. I wouldn't say I prefer solitude because my 11 years, my solitude in prison was... Um, not out of choice. They're not more than enough for a lifetime. Yes, but there are times, there are parts of it that I do miss. You know, that the, there is that closeness to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, that 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 relationship. And one thing I've learned over these eleven years is when you talk to Allah, don't talk to Him like a God. Talk to Him like a friend. Talk to Him about what's in your heart. Talk to Him like a friend. Open your heart out to Him, and He will listen to you. He will respond to you. And there were times I would make du'a to Him and instantly he would answer those du'as because I needed an answer now I didn't need it like after some time I said man Allah I need this now man I can't wait and he would always answer it he'd give it to me straight away yes I do miss parts of solitude and, and but obviously I like you know mixing I'm a very like social sociable person um, I like company but I do also like times of uh, of solitude as well but it hasn't some people prison turns them into like hermits so um, I'm glad Alhamdulillah it hasn't turned me into a hermit are you still able to laugh? Of course. I, 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 in, in fact, the only complaint I have from those close to me that sometimes I, I laugh too much and I need to be more serious. I mean, um, I learned that in prison. Even before that, that was my philosophy, that some things, if you got a choice whether to laugh or cry about something, just laugh, man. It's easier to laugh than it is to cry. So you're an optimist? Well, you have to be because our Prophet was an optimist. Our Prophet, he gave people hope. If we follow him, we have to be optimists. So as we come towards the end of the interview, Babur, um, you can take a book with you on this desert island. Uh, what book would you take with you? Don't Be Sad by Aid Al-Qarni. been translated into Arabic, Urdu, I think different languages. It's about a 400-page book which has chapters that are long as half a page or one page and they are just small anecdotes, stories, quotes, all designed to uplift a person and make him not feel sad. And I read this and it's not, this is like a book where you can open it, you can read one or two pages a day or you can open it at random. And I got so much benefit from this book and former Guantanamo detainees also told me that this was the most popular book in Guantanamo Bay as well. So if you're going through any sort of hardship, just read this, get this book don't be sad and you don't have to be a reader because the chapter is about if you as long as you can read half a page or one page in one sitting and i think even with the age of smartphones most people can do that then um get this book and if you could take a luxury item with you to this desert island what would you take 
There has to be a smartphone with a satellite connection and a solar charger. Sorry. It's cheating a little bit, but... Once I got that, then I can... Uh, the only problem with that is I'm not sure that Amazon delivers to <laughs> desert islands. Or they, they might with these drones that they're coming out with. So um, that might be an option. And what would you be doing on the phone? What would you be connecting with? I'd just be talking to my family. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, I wouldn't be like, uh, you know, watching YouTube videos of cats playing the piano and things like that because I'm sure there would be a bandwidth problem. <laughs> well, Brother Barber, Jazakallah khair for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, I think it's been uh, so many lessons and inspirations that we can learn. May Allah reward you for everything you've been through and inshallah, you know, give you the strength to continue and reach your ambitions that you have for the future and please remember us in your du'as well i mean thank you very much for for having me and for giving me this opportunity and i hope that uh, you know i hope that through my experience um people can get hope whatever they're going through in their lives and i hope they can get a bit more than hope and that they can bring some sweetness to their lives by buying my honey so go to latinhoneyshop.com before you uh, forget it, make sure you place an order online straight away. Ever a salesman. Jazakallah khair, brother Baba. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Gems.